Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Verse 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made, for, made him a little, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see, verse 9, him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste, taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, verse 10, for, for whom and by whom all things exist. What a beautiful description of God. For whom and by whom all things exist. In bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying... I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, verse 13, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For it is surely, verse 16, not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So let's pray briefly and then jump into this. Lord, this is your word. We thank you for it and ask that you would give us some illumination today that we might be able to apply this to our lives. We come here from all different types of walks of life and going through all kinds of different experiences. And we need you today, Lord. We need your help. We need your grace. We need your guidance. We need, Lord, your high priestly work as we're going to see here today in our lives. And so we ask for that. We pray that you'd give us a deeper vision for it today in your word. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Humanity is hurting. This world is not as it should be. There's chaos, there's sickness, there's war, there's famine, there are natural disasters, and we feel helpless in the face of so many of these things. And that's just humanity in general. That says nothing about your life in particular. You may be here this morning and you're saying to yourself, man, there is a pain in my heart. There is a burden that I'm enduring. There is a affliction that I'm dealing with. Why all this chaos? Where is God 
in the midst of all of this. On the passage in front of us today, the author wants to show us God's original intention and plan for humanity. That we were the pinnacle of God's created order. And that His purpose for us is that we would live at the top of creation with all of creation existing in subjection to us. But what we're going to see is that we've lost that subjection through sin, but that Jesus Christ came to do what we could not do so that we could be joined to His new humanity. And so that even though we lost our glory, He could make a way to bring us back to glory in Him and by His blood. And that even today, right now, while we're still dealing with the ramifications of the chaos and fall and brokenness, He can help us to endure the testings and the temptations that are bound to come our way in this life with a promise and plan to deliver us ultimately from this life and take us into His place of glory. All right, so that's what we're going to look at today. The author uh, makes a simple statement in verse 5, you know, kind of connecting us to what we've seen in the previous weeks, because the author has told us at this point that Jesus is greater than the prophets, and also that he's greater than the angelic realm. In fact, we saw last week that not only is he greater than the angelic realm, but he created the angelic realm, and the angelic realm exists to worship him. That's why he tells us in verse 5, as a little bit of a recap, that it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. That was not God's plan for the angelic realm. The angels are there to serve God, but they're not there to oversee humanity. They're not here to watch over creation, but that was God's original intention for human beings. That's why we have in verse 6, 7, and 8 a quotation from the author of Psalm 8. Now, Psalm 8 was written by David. And uh, David, one day, observing the stars in the sky, the handiwork of God's creation, he said this. Let's read it together in verse 6 again. I know I read the entirety of it, but let's read it again. He said, it has been testified somewhere. When, when the author of the Hebrews says that, he does, it's not some flippant attitude that he has about the Bible. Like Somewhere, someplace, I think it might have been a fortune cookie, I don't know. Somebody said this. No, he, what he's going to do is verbatim quote Psalm 8. So he's very clear on where this came from. He knows exactly where it came from. This is his way, most scholars think, of saying all of the Old Testament scriptures were written by God. It, it doesn't matter that David wrote it, that he was the human instrument. I don't need to allude to that. I just need to say God testified of himself someplace in the Old Testament, and this is what he said. He said, verse 6, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a, a, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, try to go back in time with me and think about David actually writing this psalm. You know, sitting there, like I said, looking at the stars in the sky, he actually said in verse 3 of Psalm 8, before the portion quoted before us today, he said, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, I ask the question, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? There was just this attitude within David and an attitude within the author to the Hebrews and I think should be an attitude in us that says, God, it is amazing that you care 
for humanity the way that you do. When I consider the stars and the galaxy, when I consider the fine-tuning of the planet that I live on, when I consider the variation of the land and sky and sea, when I consider all of that, when I consider that it seems like my human body was perfectly designed and that this planet and earth was perfectly designed for me to live in and upon, when I consider all of that, God, I'm just blown away that you would care like you do for humanity in general. But maybe for you, you've had this experience not just on a major scale, but on a minor scale in your own heart. Maybe you've had those moments like I have where you're given the opportunity to be out at night under a clear and beautiful sky. Maybe, maybe you're out in the forest. Maybe you're, maybe you're away from civilization a little bit. I actually had this experience this last Thursday. My running buddy and I on Thursday, we always run late in the, in the day. And so we're on these runs now where we're in the forest when it gets dark. And so we turn on our headlamps and we're just kind of cruising through the dark. It just feels so manly you know it's just that's my only way of describing it it just feels so good and 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 and, and we had this moment where it, we just turned off the headlamps this last week and just were like looking out at just the stars it was just the wind had blown that day and so everything was so clear and and just that feeling of looking up and just feeling so little so small so tiny so insignificant, just a blip, but known by God, loved by God, cared for by this infinite creator. So this, the psalmist, David, and the author to the Hebrews, he's saying that, look, we are blown away by God's individual love and care for us and his care for all of humanity. But that is not the only thing that David and the author to the Hebrews was excited about. He was excited not only about God's care, his heart for us, but also his plan for us. And that's what I want you to see in this passage. Look again in verse 7 and 8. He says, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. What he's alluding to there is the purpose and plan of God for humanity. That we, though we are made by God a little lower than the angels, we are intended by God to be crowned with glory, with honor, and have everything in his created order in subjection under our feet. Now, you might not believe me when I'm saying this, so I want to take you back, actually, to Genesis chapter 1 so that you can see it with your own two eyes, God's original intention for you and for me. In Genesis chapter 1, it's an easy one for you guys to find if you want to turn there in your Bibles. It's the first chapter of the book. In Genesis chapter 1, on the sixth day of creation, the last and final day of creation, listen to what God said. In verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, it says, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, a couple of things. First of all, you see God saying things like us and are, but we also know that God is one. So what this is hinting at is the triunity of the Godhead, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, and you're seeing it right there in Genesis chapter 1. 
So he says, though, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, God had, sa- had not said this after he created the day and night. He had not said this after he created the galaxies. He had not said this after he made the land or the sea or the sky. He had not said this after creating plant life or animal life in the sea or on land or in the air. He had not said this about anything, but after creating all of those things, he then says, now we're going to make humans, and, and, and I'm going to make him in our image. There's going to be something special about this part, this portion of my creation. But let's go on. He goes on to say in Genesis 1.26, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created Man in his image, verse 27, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the pinnacle of his creation was neither female nor male. It was humanity, and he created human, male and female, to complement each other and fulfill the image of God together. And God blessed them, verse 28, And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The word that you should notice there in that passage that I just quoted to you is the word dominion. This was God's intention for humanity that they would have, that we would have dominion over the creation that we live in. But here's the problem. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 2 and read of the problem. It says in the second half of verse 8, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. In other words, Adam had it all. He was the chief of God's creation. Everything was subjected to him. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. In other words, As we look around at humanity, though God's intention originally is that all of creation would be under us and we would have dominion over it, we are not living in that reality. We are living in a different world. We are living in a world of chaos. We are living in a world that is out of control. And that out of control state where we lost the intention that God had for us occurred because of sin. After Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, certain and specific events unfolded. God had said, the day that you do that, you will surely die. And one of the first things that occurred is that God told Adam and Eve that there would be a strife between them, where there was a partnership collectively previously to manifest the glory of God, to live out his image together, man and woman became at odds. Uh, with one another. Secondly, the ground was touched. The ground that previously Adam worked, make no mistake, he had a job before the fall of humanity. It was God's desire that he would work, but it's just that he was working with the earth and the earth was working with him. It, It was a partnership together, but God said to Adam after he fell into his sin that now the ground will yield thorns and thistles. And by the sweat of your brow, you will eat bread. You are at the mercy of the earth. 
You'll plant, but you don't know that you're going to harvest. And you don't know what kind of harvest is going to come. You get into real estate and the economy tanks. You don't know what is coming. It is a constant fight for survival. After that occurred, their sons, Cain and Abel, they were no longer in partnership with each other. Cain becoming jealous of Abel and killing him, taking his life. So brother, family against family. Lamech, another man, another character in Genesis, entered into polygamy, a parade of death passed by, and a flood destroyed nearly all of humanity. And after that flood, the animal kingdom began to live in fear of the humanity that was supposed to be in caring dominion over them. And we are still living in that fallen and broken state. So God's plan, what was God's purpose for you and for me? Well, he, he had this high and exalted plan that we would have everything in dominion, uh, be in dominion over all things. We were supposed to be crowned, but through sin, we lost that crown. And we still live in that time. We still live in that world. Life is, like I mentioned, a struggle for survival. Think about all the natural disasters that unfold here on earth. You know, we don't know when they're going to come. We don't know when they're going to happen. We're at their mercy. This is part of the fall that we're living in. Even our own bodies, as much as we take care of them, we try to be all faithful, you know, and, and eat clean and, and uh, you know, exercise and all of that. But you can do all of those things and a cancer can come into your body. We just don't know. You can, you can exist with total sanity, total clarity of thought, and then boom, one day something happens inside the brain and a depression comes upon you or your memory begins to fade and, and an illness of the mind comes into to, to, to your body. We, we just don't know. We're, we're at, the, at the mercy of this chaotic world that we are living in, and we've tried to respond to it, of course. We've built hospitals and developed medicine, and created fire departments, and police departments, and militaries, and things like that, in order to try to deal with the brokenness that we're living in. And that, that is God's common grace, in a sense, to enable us to do so. But it does not negate the fact that we are a far cry from what God originally intended for us to be. All right, so, so that's the reality we could end this sermon right here and you guys could just leave all sad, you know, bummed out. Like, okay, that's what we were supposed to be. We didn't get there. Because he, he's saying there in verse 8, he's saying we don't see it right now. We don't see everything in subjection. That we're not living that. As much as you might try to control your little world, it's not in your control. So we don't have subjection today. But what do we see? Let's read it in verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You know who we see? We, we don't see humanity with creation in subjection to it, but we do see Jesus. It's interesting, the, the author to the Hebrews, he talks about Jesus through the whole book. You've probably picked up on that already. The whole book is very directly about Jesus. 
And he'll have a lot of different titles for Jesus, but nine times in this book, he's going to refer to Jesus by his earthly human name, Jesus. It's a way for him, every time he uses Jesus' earthly human name, it's a way for him to talk about Jesus' humanity. And what he's announcing here is he's saying, look, all of humanity, man, we fell. We do not have creation and subjection to us, but there is one human One human who made it. One human who did it. One human who who succeeded. One human who was able to regain that crown that humanity lost. That's why he talks there in verse 9 about Jesus. He also, like us, was made lower than the angels in his incarnation. And he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So how do we, here's a question, how do we get that crown and original intention of God back? Well, we get it through Jesus. That's why it says in verse 10 that it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should, be made, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. You see, what Jesus did is that the Father sent him to help us, notice that in verse 10, bring many sons, and and the text means sons and daughters, to bring many to glory. This is his way of saying, we lost all of that, but God wants to bring you back to that. And how does he bring you back to that? With, he says, the founder of your salvation, or the captain of your salvation. That word founder is a word that means captain, or author, or leader, or originator. It means that Jesus went first. I told you a few weeks ago that I recently went to Yosemite with Pastor Josh. He took us on this cool camping trip, a few of us, a, a, a you know, backpacking trip. And we're just kind of going out into the wilderness. And I'm not wondering, like, where do we go? What's happening? I'm just following him. You know, you know where to go. You are blazing the trail. It's the same thing with our salvation, with this life. Jesus lived that life first. He shows us the way. He is the founder of. He's the captain of. He blazes that trail for us. And it was a salvation that cost him. Notice it in verse 10, his own suffering. It says that he was made perfect through suffering. And when it says that about Jesus, it doesn't mean that he was imperfect morally before this moment. No, it doesn't mean that at all. Jesus has always been, and as he's always been, he's always been morally perfect. There's been no flaw in him. But he became complete as our Savior. He became perfect as our Savior through his suffering. It was one thing for him to say, my heart is to save you. My compassion is toward you. But his compassion became complete and perfect there upon the cross. If you've ever wondered about your value before God, you must look to the cross of Christ. When you see Jesus with his arms outstretched and pegged into that cross and his feet pegged into that cross, you know the price that he was willing to pay for you. This is the, the evaluation that he places upon human beings. He was made perfect. The salvation was, was made possible through his suffering. So what does that mean then? Well, because Jesus did that, there's this cool new relationship that we have with him. Remember God's intention? God's intention was that we would be the crowning pinnacle of his created order. 
We lost some of that image of God through sin. But when Jesus comes into your life, what happens to you? Well, notice in verse 11, it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother. He's not ashamed to call you his brother. Now, that that word for brothers is a Greek word that can, depending on the context, be translated either brothers or brothers and sisters. So for all of our all of the sisters in Christ here today, you know, I'm like, man, I don't want Jesus calling me brother or bro, you know. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a word that that is that covers both genders. And here what we learn is that Jesus is the founder of our salvation, and he brings people who believe in him into his family to a degree that he is not ashamed to call us his siblings. In other words, before the Father, you have the position, the standing of Christ, and he looks at you and he's not ashamed for you to be his brother or his sister. That is an astounding concept. I remember when I was in high school, my freshman year of high school, uh, I went to Pacific Grove High School, and I had a a buddy who was a fellow freshman with me, and he had a, a brother, an older brother, who was a senior but he didn't go to our school. He went to Robert Louis Stevenson, or it's now just called Stevenson, out in Pebble Beach in the forest. And he was a really good basketball player, and we were basketball players also. So a couple times a year, our teams would play each other, you know, Pacific Grove versus RLS. And we would play our little freshman game, you know, where it would be us out on the court and then like seven moms that were there also watching the game, you know, very small, you know, crowd and all of that. No one was there. We'd play our game and then we'd go, we'd shower up, get cleaned up, and then we'd go back into the gym. We'd kind of sit through the JV game and then we'd go and we'd watch the varsity game and the crowds, you know, would come in. We felt like it was millions of people, you know, and all that. The gym would fill up. But his brother was a, a, re, a really good athlete, a really good player, and his name was Lou. So every time that Lou touched the ball, uh, we thought it, we were so cool because Lou kind of sounds like boo, and sometimes in sports, you know, when guys have names that rhyme with boo, you know, you're, you're cheering him on, but you say, Lou. And so we'd all be in the corner, just a bunch of freshmen, all geeky, you know. We're like, Lou, you know. We, and we just thought we were so cool. Everyone's kind of looking at us, and all we wanted, we just wanted... We just wanted Lou at some point, like a timeout or some little moment where he could, just to kind of look over and just be like, what's up, guys? Like, I, I like you guys, you know? And it never happened. Never happened. Never acknowledged us, you know, as far as I know. But it's what we were hoping for. And I could just imagine him out on the court just thinking to himself, like, that is my little brother and his dorky friends. I am so embarrassed by these guys. Why are they doing that, you know, kind of thing. Jesus comes along into our lives. And though there is so much that we do that is embarrassing, so much that we do that is shameful, so many sins that we commit that cross the line, so many habits that we get into that are just abhorrent, though that is the reality by His blood when He makes us a child of God, He comes into a state where he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. Though we we lost all that glory through sin, he makes a way to bring us back into the family of God. And he is not ashamed. He is not embarrassed 
of us. He's proud of us. He loves us. He is excited to present us before his Father. Listen, I, 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 I've been walking with the Lord for 22 years now, and I can testify that there is, not a, there is not a day that has gone by in my Christian life where there hasn't been something from that day, if I'm honest in reflecting upon it, that I look back, that, 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 that I look at and say, you know, that, that was embarrassing that I did that. That was that was weird when I said that or when I thought that or when I felt that or when I reacted that way. That was unchristlike. But the Lord still, in the midst of all of that, He is not ashamed to call us His brothers and sisters in Christ. That, that should just floor us. And He actually, the author, quotes from Psalm 22, which if you know anything about Psalm 22, you know that it is so clearly about Jesus. It's the one that begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which sounds familiar to you because Jesus said it on the cross. But in that psalm, notice in verse 12, Jesus said, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. But also, he then quotes from Isaiah chapter 8 where he says, and I will put my trust in him. Behold, I and the children God has given me. You see, in a sense, the captain of our salvation, the founder of our salvation, Jesus, when he became flesh and dwelt among us and lived this life, you know one of the things that he did, that he showed us? He showed us how to live in trust and dependence upon God. Sometimes we have this picture of Jesus, like when he came to earth, he just had this, like, you know, he took on humanity, but, you know, he was just always constantly just tapping into that deity, you know, and every time things got difficult or hard, he was just tapping into the divine side of himself. So life was actually rather easy. But no, the Bible teaches something contrary to that. The Bible teaches that he came in full dependence upon his Father in heaven. That he was leaning upon him, learning of him, crying out to him, praying to him. And Jesus showed us to a degree. It's like he's looking at all of our brothers and sisters, all of his brothers and sisters, and saying, look, this is how I did it. I, I had to trust my Father every day. I had to cry out to my Father every day. I had to lean upon Him every day. I had to feast upon His Word. When, when, Je when Jesus was tempted, when Jesus was tempted and He shot back to Satan when Satan said, turn these, turn these st stones into, into, into bread and all of that, when, when Jesus was tempted with that, He fired back from Deuteronomy. He said, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. It's not like he was just like saying, like, I got a good verse. It was his discovery. He had figured out as he'd gone through the very Bible that he had written, he had figured out this is how humans live. This is how they survive. I'm, I'm trying to be the captain of this to show all my brothers and sisters this is how you do it. You live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, he, he was trying to testify and demonstrate for us a life of trust and faith in his Father. That's why he says, Behold, I am the children that God has given to me. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Okay, well, so we lost all of this, and Jesus came, and now he's brought us, you know, by his blood back into glory and all of that. But I mean, really, how, 
how closely could he identify with, with me? Well, let's read it there again in verse 14. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Now here, here's the thing. So often we think of death as just one deal, one event. We think about it as the expiration of these bodies, that they physically die. But think about that for a second. God said to Adam and Eve, the day that you eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day that you eat it, you will surely die. They ate, the curse was pronounced, there was strife between them, strife with the earth, strife between their children, death in the generations, but their bodies did not expire immediately. They were still physically alive. They were dying. There was a date that would come where their bodies would expire. But God had said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. What that means is that death is more than just the expiration of our bodies. Death is what we're living in. When, when, when a sickness comes into somebody's life, that's part of death. When a relational fracture becomes so severe that it is beyond repair, that's part of death. When we can't lead or organize things and get a group of people together for a common good, that's part of death. When nations rage against each other, that's part of death. We're living in it. And so Jesus came to deliver us from that. He wanted to, notice there in verse 14, destroy the one who has the power of death. That's Satan. He says that is the devil. Because when we fell into sin, we handed over so much of our authority to the devil. So Jesus came to destroy him. And, verse 15, also to deliver all of us who through fear of death, we're subject to lifelong slavery. We're just in it, under it, and Jesus came to deliver us from the fear of death. Not just the fear of dying. That's, that's one thing, you know, the, the fear of dying. I still, I've had so many car accidents where people have crossed, you know, I had one a few years ago where someone crossed the center line and just plowed into me. I think he was on his cell phone or something, just plowed right into me and just really freaked me out. And now I'm driving on the road. Somebody pulls out, you know, a little too quickly. They're doing everything right, but it just seems a little too loose for me. I still, you know, flinch. I still, you know, it's like, oh, I'm afraid of that happening to me. That's not what he's talking about, the fear of dying in a particular way. No, it's a fear of the looming sense of like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen with me? So Jesus came to help us. It says in verse 16, for surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Jesus did not come as, a, as an angel. He did not incarnate as an angel. He did not come to the angelic realm to save the angelic realm. No, their fate is sealed and done. But he did come as the offspring of Abraham. He was, he was of Abraham. He was of the tribe of Judah. He was of the family and lineage of David. He came as a Jew. He came as a Hebrew. Jesus came 
incarnated as a Jew to bring help to the offspring of Abraham. Now, uh, you might be sitting here today going, well, like, but I'm not, I'm not a physical descendant of Abraham. And if you're saying that and you're saying, but so, you know, I guess there's no help for me. It's not that he's saying he only comes to the offspring of Abraham. He, he comes to humanity in general, but as Paul taught in Romans, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And by the way, you can become spiritual seed of Abraham or a spiritual descendant of Abraham by simply believing in the Lord. It says in Galatians 3, verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And how do you become heirs according to the promise? How do you become Abraham's offspring? Well, it says in Romans 4, verse 3, that Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. How do you come into the family of God? How do you get the help of Jesus? How do you get this cool rescue that he's talking about? That we lost that subjection. We lost that dominion. How do you get his help to climb out of that? By faith. By simple belief in what Christ has done for you. And taking your place upon the cross. Therefore, verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, what, what's happening here is that in order to bring many sons and daughters to glory, Jesus had to become like you and me. How much did he become like you and me? Well, it says there in verse 17, in every respect, he had to become like us. Just think about that today. I, 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 to be honest with you, I didn't plan on you know, being in Hebrews 1 and 2 during this time of year so that I could talk about Christmas and the incarnation and stuff like that, but we're just in these like epic Christmas incarnation passages right now where God became like his brothers in every respect. Just think about what that was like. You know, the Son of God becoming a baby, a full-on dependent. I remember with all, three of our, with all three of our daughters, it was like this celebration when they could get to the phase in their lives where they could put their pants on by themselves. It was just so exciting. They might not have been very good at it. They might have been inside out, backwards, whatever, but it was just like they did it without our assistance. You know, but, it, but there's a dependency. You know, a baby needs to depend upon his or her mother for provision, for, the, for their mother's milk, for sustenance. And Jesus endured that. The, the one who created all flesh had to depend on other people to to provide for him, to care for him. And as he grew, you know, he went through childhood. He went through, I always trip out on this, he went through puberty. I mean, if that's not identifying with us and our weaknesses, I don't know what is. You know, to go through that like, oh, there's Jesus, he's in that, oh, poor, you know, he's going to turn out all right, but he's just in that awkward, you know, kind of stage, you know, it's like, it's okay, he's going to be handsome someday, you know, kind of thing. He endured that for us. Luke records that Jesus grew in his childhood in wisdom and in stature. 
there was somehow this growing consciousness of who he was and who his father in heaven was. He was developing, and the, the, the humanness in him was growing and expanding and developing. It's powerful. He became a, an adult. And it seems that his adulthood was not all that easy. It seems, as you put it all together, that Jesus began his public ministry when he was 30 years old or so. So he lived an adult life for a while before his public ministry began. Indications are that his father Joseph, who was a good man and would not have abandoned his family from what we know about him, was not around during Jesus's older years. So traditionally, we think that he probably died because he's just not the kind of guy with the character to leave his family. He was probably older, something happened, he died. Now keep in mind, Jesus was the oldest of a lot of siblings. Mary and Joseph had many natural-born children after Jesus' birth. So who would be leaned upon to provide for all of those children? It would be Jesus. He had to go through the human experience of working with his own hands, likely as a carpenter, which might not always mean that, you know, the shaping of wood and making cool tables and stuff like that, but in that culture, they would work with the material at hand. And in Nazareth, the material at hand was stone. To, to be chiseling and driving and building with rock, I mean, this was a, 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 a he was a tough person who had to learn how to, by the sweat of his brow, care for the people, the human beings that God had given to him. He knows about that. He's experienced that. He was made like us in every respect. And why did he do this? Well, here's why. Verse 17 and 18. Because he wanted to become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Now, I'm not going to really talk about that today because the book of Hebrews is really all about that. We're going to learn about what it means that Jesus is right now your faithful high priest. But he did it by making propitiation for the sins of the people, it says in verse 17. That means that he consumed in his body the judgment that was rightfully ours. Because, verse 18, he himself suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, what the author wants you to know is that you had glory, we had glory originally, we lost it through sin. Jesus wants to bring many of us back to glory. And part of the way that he wants to do that is by right now helping us endure temptation. Because he was tempted. I know how a lot of believers think. We think, well, I know about temptation, but I'm not so sure that Jesus really knows about temptation. You know, he, had, he, was, he was divine at the same time as being fully, fully human. And so when he was tempted, you know, he couldn't sin and all of that. And I can. I've tasted it. I've, I've given into it. And so, you know, his temptation is different from my temptation. But for me, at least, when I read of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, where for 40 days and 40 nights he was without food, without drink, and the devil himself and all the demonic realm was focused on him during that period of 40 days trying to get him to commit one sin. 
and his body was beginning to perish and expire, and yet he stood in the face of that temptation. When I read about Christ's temptation, I come to the conclusion I'm the one who doesn't know anything about temptation. He went through it so that he could help you and me in our temptations today. So the question that we should ask ourselves is this. Do I want his help? Do I want him to help me through temptation in life? Do I want him to bring me back to that place of glory that I lost through sin? Or do I like my temptations? Do I like my sin? And do I want to stay where I am? You see, the Lord, he has a vision for your life. But that doesn't mean that because he has a vision for your life, you share that vision with him. So the question, again, do you want the Lord to help you in the face of temptation? And that really, in a sense, is what we're going to learn in the book of Hebrews, how Jesus, our great high priest, is right now available to help us endure the pain and difficulty of life to bring us back to that place of glory. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our senior pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.